Laurie started out as a very successful entrepreneur and businessman, and although initially he enjoyed his time in the city and later in the engineering industry for some 12 years, he always felt something was missing. Having turned around and sold his business, he realized he was making more money than he needed to live on and didn't feel fulfilled. His mother guided him towards volunteering, which he did for a couple of charities, including Jamie, Jewish Association for Mental Illness, which back in the 1990s operated from a scout hut in Wembley. Laurie would give up his Sundays, get out the equipment, make sandwiches, play guitar, join in on trips and generally hang around and get stuck in. He soon made a name for himself and was approached by the trustees of Jamie to become the new CEO, where he has been for the last 12 years. Jamie has grown beyond all recognition since those early days, in no small measure due to Laurie's qualities, not only as a fine businessman, but someone who is passionate about improving the lives of those in the community suffering from poor mental health. Join me as Laurie takes us from his early involvement in Jamie to the wonderful and inspiring charity it is today. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Well, I'm delighted to be here today with an old friend, uh, not that old actually, <laughs> uh, Laurie Rackind, who is the CEO, Chief Executive Officer of a wonderful uh, charity, Jamie, J-A-M-I, or the Jewish Association for Mental Illness. I think I've got that right. You have indeed. Well, thank you very much, Laurie, for uh, guesting, being a guest on the show. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to have you on the show. And... Um, to be in one of your four hubs, I think. Is, do you call this a hub where we are here in Edgware, or is this your head office? No, our offices are here. We actually have six six hubs oh, now. Six hubs now. Um, but mental health services have, have gone beyond kind of building-based services. And in fact, now the majority of our services are actually provided to people outside those those hubs traditional day services are kind of or traditional day services are kind of long gone but even building the base services are are, are are less used now than they were in the past mm. so what i want to do today if at all possible is just to because obviously you're not from a, a charity type background you're from an engineering background so i want to understand a little bit about how you made that shift from i suppose the corporate world into the voluntary charitable sector obviously a slightly, slightly different arc, shall we say, for your career. And one, no doubt you're enjoying because you're still smiling. Absolutely. <laughs> you're absolutely. Still, you're still here after a number of years. So just explain to us what it was, what you were in engineering, first well, of yeah, all. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd probably best describe myself as an entrepreneur who's not turned on enough by the bottom bottom line, the financial bottom, bottom okay, line. That's interesting. Um, so um, yes, I did a d- degree in engineering and business studies. I had a scholarship from a, a telecoms company, and through a mistake, they uh, gave me a job as a software engineer. Um, what, they, do you, what do you mean by a mistake? Well, they thought I was doing a computer science degree, and I wasn't. But always looking to kind of expand my knowledge and skill sets, I didn't tell them that they'd made a mistake until six weeks into the job. Um, so I started as a, as a software engineer, and I actually worked at the London Business School was my first proper job. I was five years in the Institute of Finance. Um, what was doing, your role there? Uh, financial modelling. Basically, whatever research that was going on in the Institute of Finance, I put that into a software package um, and we sold it onto the city. And I had a great five years. It probably happened too early on in my career. I had an office overlooking Regent's Park and a parking space outside. I didn't realise, you know, that Did wasn't... have your name on it? That wasn't the norm. <laughs> um, so, no, it was, it, it was a great... Um, it was a great five years, but the natural career progression was into the city and um, it really wasn't a drive for me. And in fact, 
to be fair, I got really disenchanted with with the city. You know, a lot of very very clever people. With uh, you know, I was I did a, a bit of lecturing on the MBA um, course at London Business School, and we were getting people that are trained as doctors and decided that they were going to come into the city. And for me, that's kind of the wrong way around, and it's yeah. such, such a shame. So I got a bit disenchanted. I applied for a job on the QE2 as a fitness instructor. Oh, crikey. That's and, a hell of a uh, talk about running away. Well, yeah. I, I didn't have the skills to run away and join the circus. So uh, fitness instructor on the QE2. you're pretty good at juggling. Well, <laughs> so um, thankfully I didn't get that job because I've now found out I get really seasick. So that would have been a really bad job. Um, and they told me, thankfully, I was overqualified for the job. Yeah. And then an opportunity came up with, a, um, funny enough, a company that I've been involved with while I was at university. And um, I offered to go and help out for six months. There. And to cut a fairly long story quite short, I ended up um, buying out five of the directors um, and it ended up being um, 50% shareholder of the, of the company. Um, stayed there 12, 13 years and it was a real lifestyle business for me. It was great. I used to swim internationally. It enabled me to train, compete. We exported to about 45 countries. Um, and it was, what was the business? What did it do? We made specialist heating equipment for the uh-huh. chemical and process industries. A few, uh, we had a few of the less technical interventions were to help out with McVitie's putting little orangey bits into gaffer cakes, which is cakes or biscuits. Well, no, no, let's not go there. <laughs> Certainly, if you've got anything to do with VAT, we'll leave that one. Um, That's something with uh, Europe, I think. Wasn't uh, it? No, so, I think so. And also um, shredded wheat, uh-huh. the, the raisin paste. You know the little. I can't, anyway, I can't say I did. They had, they had problems putting the, the raisin paste in, so we helped them out with that. There was some slightly well, more. Well, thank God for that. More, absolutely. <laughs> that's my claim to fame. I'm not sure I ever got a, a, a blue plaque outside the McVitie's factory, but uh, um, no, so it was a, it, it was a really good, good 12 years. For me, it was, a, as I said, a lifestyle business. Um, financially, I was able to do well. Um, um, but through that period, I, the reason I was able to buy the other directors out is that it had been losing money, the company. So they were quite happy to get out quickly. Managed to turn it around really quite quickly. And I remember having a conversation with my mother at the time um, saying, well, what do I do? Because I've kind of, I've turned my back on the city. Um, I'm now making more money than I need from the business as well. We're turning a profit. I don't want to just stay late in the evenings to make more money. It's not, it just doesn't do it for me. And so she suggested I join. Um, she was a member of a group called the League of Jewish Women. Yeah. And she suggested that I join that and start doing some voluntary work. I now realize it was her intent was just to get me to mix socially within a Jewish group and find a nice Jewish woman. <laughs> but I got really hooked into the voluntary work. And so funny, the League of Jewish Women is not exclusively for women. Uh, I, <laughs> not in my experience, if they invited, <laughs> invited me. So, no, I don't believe it is. Right. And uh, anyway, so I, I started volunteering uh-huh. with a couple. In fact, and one of the first two charities I um, started volunteering with in the mid-90s was, was Jamie. So then roll forward, I carried on volunteering on Sundays with Jamie um, for, I guess it would have been about three or four years. And what, what was the, what were you doing in your role as a volunteer? Playing guitar opening with they used to operate from a scout hut in webley yeah. on a sunday they used to kind of open the cupboard take the stuff out help making sandwiches play guitar go on trips so it you, was just you were just hang, hanging, hanging around. around and entertaining and just supporting absolutely well i'm not sure about the ent- entertaining or to hear my guitar play <laughs> it can't have been that entertaining maybe it made people feel better about their own musical ability i don't know so I did that on a sunday and then carried on doing that the the, the group that i joined kind of disbanded 
Um, and I think two of us were still left doing voluntary work. Anyway, so then it would have been about late 90s then I found out, about 99 I think, I found out I had arthritis. Needed um, a hip replacement and was going to have to pack up swimming. Which, And for me, that was the raison d'etre for running the company because it enabled me to have a swimming competition in Hong Kong, go and see my Hong Kong agent for 10 minutes and then spend the rest of the week swimming. Um, so it kind of... So when I realised I couldn't compete um, competitively swimming anymore, it was almost, well, why am I still running running the business? Anyway, to cut another slightly long story short, I managed to sell the business, sold up in 2000. The new owners needed me to hang around for a bit. So I started volunteering a couple of days a week rather than just on a Sunday. And I was really atypical. So one of the charities, again, I did that for was, was Jamie. And your stereotypical image of a volunteer, certainly midweek, is someone that's retired, maybe a grandparent, there's a bit of time on their hands, to have someone in their 30s Clearly was, didn't fit was a bit unusual, profile. but I really, really enjoyed it. And that was, I guess, my start of doing more than just a few hours a month of, of, of voluntary work. Mm. So you were spending more time in the, as a volunteer in a different building now. I think you're now volunteering in, was it this time in Golders Green in a by day centre? By that, by that point, Jamie had bought... Or I think a, another charitable foundation had bought and leased to Jamie yeah. um, a day centre in uh, in Golders Green. So that's where I went, and it was opera. Actually, then tied in two of my interests because not only could could the members have the misfortune of listening to me play guitar, but there was a swimming pool across the road. I think it was an LA Fitness that yeah. still exists at that point across the road, and we managed to negotiate to allow to take members in swimming. And I, obviously, I was the ideal person to take across so i spent my weeks taking happy days happy days and then a couple of the i think it was a social worker one of the trustees said well we can't have you volunteering two or three days a week we've got to pay you so i said well pay me to do what we'll pay you to do what you're doing and i said well there's no kind of strategy behind that no that doesn't make any sense but i was doing a bit of consultancy for a couple of small businesses at the time and i said well look, if you want to pay me i'll do a bit of a kind of a consultancy report, if you like, on the charity and try and put a bit of a strategy paper together. So the trustees asked me to do that. I spent a, bit, a, a few weeks doing that. And then they, the trustees asked me to do an implementation plan. And I did. And then the trustees said, would you implement your implementation plan? And so I said, yes. And one thing led, led to another. And then, so I hung around for about a year and a half, actually, um, while... We set a bit of a strategy for the charity. We set, you know, the charity didn't have any job descriptions. I mean, it really was, it was, I think it was a, a real labor of love for the founding trustees that, yeah. that you'd know today. Yes. Um, but there was, in terms of uh, the USP of the charity and where it sat in the community and what it actually did, I think it needed, uh, needed a bit of work. And then to, so after about a year and a half, I said, well, look, we've got the operations running. So you really now need to kind of move on from a, um, uh, a trustee-run organisation to have it professionally run if you're really going to fulfil some of your strategic objectives. And so very flatteringly, they asked me to do it. And I said, no, 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 that's that really would be wrong. So you were still volunteering at the uh, stage? No, or were you I've in, been, in I was a, volunteering and I was paid to do this consultancy work uh-huh. and the, and the low-level restructuring that we'd done. And so they then um, said, well, would I, uh, um, would I take the job? And I said, I thought that would be entirely inappropriate. There should be a proper process. And I wasn't ready to and to be honest i wasn't looking for a full-time job either so they appointed a, an executive director um who was around for about two years mm-hmm. and i have to say in those two years i did 
less for Jamie. I think part of me wanted to step back. It wasn't fair to the, yeah. the director. But roll forward a couple of years and two of the founding trustees <laughs> came to see me, one of which you know very well. And said, so, you know, there were a few issues that they'd like to mm-hmm. get around. Would I be interested in, in taking the role of, of director? At this point, I'd met my now wife, um, realized that I wasn't setting the right role model for our future children. As in the fact I was doing a bit of consultancy, a bit of cycle guiding, a bit of didn't really have a structured date. It was great. I guess I was retired in my 30s. And also the the amount of money that I'd sold up for was great for a single guy. was not going to be enough for, for a family. So perfect storm. Trustees coming to me to do I want a job. My wife nagging me to say, you need a job. Take on the job of a nice little charity that and I had a lot of time for. I just love that story because it's it's – the arc of the story, all the different aspects, the peaks and troughs and being in the right place at the right time, if you like. But you're also doing what you want to do and excelling in doing what you want to do and being noticed for doing, you know, the things that you love and dropping all the things that weren't really fulfilling you. Yes. And I think, and that for me is a really fortunate position that I was in, that I'd always, it's not the case when you have a family, but when you're single, if you're fortunate enough to, to have a good job and a good career, it does give you choices. And for me, maybe I described myself at the outset of a, as an entrepreneur that wasn't turned on by the financial bottom line, but maybe I'm, I'm an entrepreneur that's turned on by the freedom that it can sure. develop and the freedom yeah. of creativity and allowed to develop. And, and thankfully the trust, I mean, I've now been 12 years at Jamie and I've had various different trustees, various different boards, but they've all given us the freedom to really develop the organization and we've gone from five staff and about three hundred and fifty thousand income when i started to about 70 staff and this year um budget income will be about 3.2 million fantastic um so it's been a wonderful journey mm. um and i haven't really noticed it <laughs> in that century i guess is the well because you're stuck in the middle of it aren't well you, yeah so. said yeah sometimes it sometimes it's good to take a st- step back and look yeah. back and think well how did that happen and of course we know how I mean, we've got various strategic plans that we put in place yeah. and what have you but still it's quite gratifying yeah, to see that time does fly past. in fact sometimes this process of actually having this conversation i found with a lot of people i've interviewed say wow i didn't really appreciate you know how i got to where i am today and you know how, how time has flown just what it was the high level aspiration of jamie to, to do on a day-to-day basis jamie's vision mm-hmm. is to make jamie redundant okay. <laughs> now that is a very high level aspiration and I don't believe it's realistic. But what is realistic is that Jamie shrinks and maybe I should put that in some kind of context. Um, for when I started at Jamie and, and, and for years, I think mental health services could best be st- described as within the Jewish community and outside, but as being institutionalized Jewish mothers. They wrapped everybody in cotton wool and they gave them chicken soup and it was a place of safety. And it was only relatively recently that people started talking about recovery. And, and now recovery isn't a cure. It's not symptom-free living. It's about um, uh, managing your health. It's no more recovery than, you know, I've got two metal hips now. Have I recovered from arthritis? Have I cured my arthritis? No, but I managed the condition and i think mental health is is much the same so we talk an awful lot about recovery but whatever work we do and at, at any one time there are almost 60 mental health professionals within jamie now providing services to about 1300 people at uh, at, at any one time on, on on our on our books if you 
But whatever amazing coalface work is being done by my colleagues, and in the main they are social workers, occupational therapists, peer support workers, and then individual specialists in different areas, but whatever amazing work they do to support people's recovery, if the community, people's families, their work, uh, their work colleagues, their schools, their universities, their synagogues, their social groups don't understand mental health, then when people go back to those groups, they're just much more likely to become unwell again and come back to you. So part of what we do, as well as that kind of coalface work, the vision is to build capacity and capability in the rest of the community, in individuals, in other communal organisations, to enable an awful lot of that well-being work to be done by other organisations. And absolutely, Jamie is there as the specialist and we will provide the complex interventions. But the hope is that through time, the complexity of those interventions will increase, but the number will reduce because so much more is being done outside in the wider community. I'm guessing a lot of that is down to education and destigmatizing mental health, which from, from my personal perspective, when my sister became ill 50 odd years ago, whenever it was, mental health, mental illness, and certainly words like schizophrenia yeah. were, were terrible things Absolutely. to say in public. And you couldn't, you couldn't mention that. Well, I think, I think I often use, and a lot of people use the analogy with cancer. Mm. You know, 35 years ago, um, maybe 40 years ago, people talk about the C word. And for years and years, it was just the same as we, when we talk about mental illness now. You know, you mention it around a dinner table, the C word, that would be the end of the conversation. Now, people are much more educated. They're less ignorant, less scared. And the conversations around cancer will be about individual diagnosis, treatments, prognosis, just all very specific discussions about cancer. We need to get to that point with, with mental illness as well, mm. so that we don't just lump it all together as mental illness. In fact, we don't even separate between physical illness and mental illness. We just talk about health and illness and particular conditions. So yes, we might talk about schizophrenia. We might talk about more broadly psychosis or OCD or any number of different conditions. And we are all more educated and all more able to have those conversations. And if we do, then it will be about, well, you know, imagine if, if someone starts talking about their psychosis, ah, I didn't know that. When, when you first have your episodes, how do they manifest themselves? What are the triggers? How do you manage it? Those are the conversations that people need, need to have. And we all need to have to increase the, the knowledge base of the, of the community. And, the, and as I said, the capacity and the capability of the community to be able to, mm. to, to, to deal with our own health. Yeah. I mean, what you said is a wonderful aspiration to make yourself redundant and, you know, in a perfect world, that would, that would be, I'm not be ready. wonderful. I've got a seven year old daughter. I'm not ready to make myself personally. <laughs> no, redundant I don't, just yet. I don't mean you, Give yeah. me four or five years. <laughs> but it would be wonderful that, yeah. you know, mental health wasn't an issue, but from what I can see, whilst the stigmatization of mental health is probably reducing the number of people presenting with mental health issues seems to be, on the increase, and I don't know, the statistics, something like one in four yeah. adults will suffer a mental health issue. Yes, one, one in four um, at any one time have got a diagnosable mental health issue. Look, whether or not the prevalence of mental health conditions is increasing or the stigma is sub sub subsiding mm. and people more able to talk about mental health, there's no doubt that it's, people are talking about mental health an awful lot more. In a way, it doesn't matter. All we know is that more people, you know, referrals to Jamie are, 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 are going up. I actually see that as a positive thing because if the referral, I wouldn't, I don't believe that if the referrals weren't coming our way, it would mean that people are healthy. It just means that they're not able to pick up the phone yeah. and, and, to, and start the conversations. Um, so 
Yes, you're right. It's a, it's a long-term aspiration, but I think it is about changing where pe- the people's perception of, uh, of mental illness and, and what, and, and just acknowledging, I mean, you mentioned the stat of one in four. I actually don't think, and I've stopped using the stat one in four because one in four as a mathematician and engineer says to me, well, that's okay. Cause if I'm one of the three in four, I'm not going to have a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. My experience and the, the most people say that's not the case. We all have a 25% chance of becoming unwell. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a different way of explaining it, but sure. it's the same stat. We all move. None of us would turn around and say, we are always physically healthy. But you, you said diagnosable condition, one in four. I mean, that because we all, forgive me if I'm talking, you know, we all suffer from mental health concerns, shall we say, as opposed to illnesses, diagnosable illnesses. I don't know whether it's a, a stressful situation. And it's whether we can cope with that and overcome that and it doesn't affect our, our day-to-day life. But you said one in four diagnosable. And that, that's a very high... D- diagnose, but diagnosis is a movable thing. Uh-huh, There's only one time. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, clinicians' diagnosis books, I mean, they, they are always, they're always changing. And I think, you know, certainly in, in, in mental health, absolutely, you know, you've been to our cafe. There are all over the, the walls, there are, you know, person not... Labels of the jars for people. Because what we're saying is, however helpful it might be in terms of informing statutory authorities about what, what some, where someone's at, is by giving them a label, giving them a diagnosis. And it, don't get me wrong, it's helpful. And for a lot of people, it's helpful to know that part of the reason for the, the issues they're experiencing is because medical science has said that this is this is this is the diagnosis. We at Jamie, and I think an awful lot of mental health services, are addressing the needs of that person. Now, if someone is having problems uh, maintaining a job or living independently or relationships or what have you, it doesn't really matter the reason that they've come to you. The fact is they need that, that support. And I think sometimes, I remember, just to give you an example, I remember after we'd started our um, first employment project at Jamie many, many years ago, I read a paper that... And I paraphrase because the title wasn't schizophrenics can't work, but it wasn't far off that. Had I been blinkered in thinking, well, okay, well, that means that everybody with, you know, psychosis A, B and C, we can't put into the employment project. That would have cut out so many people. So that's when I say that diagnosis isn't always helpful. What I also think is that we all live on a spectrum of health. And we've got different strengths, different weaknesses. Some of us have got resilient skills. Some of us don't. But they all, a lot of these are learned skills. And a lot of the work we're doing in schools at the moment is to develop, is help give people the, these skills. Analogy I would give, you know, if I, I didn't see you walk here today, but assuming you walked 50 meters from your car, I, would I say, right, I've got a marathon that I need to run you to run tomorrow, Steve. Will you go and run the marathon? No. Now, but if you were a law graduate, and you've come to me, you've just got a, the job. You've demonstrated that you can walk 50 meters in legal terms because you've got your degree. I now say, right, there's an 80 hour a week job. Go do. We don't give anybody. It's, it, it's different. There's raw ingredients. There's, there's capability, but there's how you apply that and what, um, protection, what resilience you need to enable you to perform that. And I think we don't do that. So, you know, how many, School students, certainly in our day, would have we wouldn't have had any training in terms of stress management or anything like that. I would argue that is equally, if not more important, than the basic academic skills. Do you think we're, as a community and the wider community, do you think we're 
and I'm probably thinking more of our young adults, adolescents, you know, young. Do you think we're less resilient than we used to be? And if so, do you think it's because of things like social media, the way we compare each other to each other? Everyone's got to what we were talking, you know, before we went live, if you like, how we compare ourselves, if you like, to people on social media. You believe we've got successful lives or happy smiling families on their wonderful holidays, but behind the scenes, it's shit going down, frankly. Do, do you think that's one of the issues? We're, we're less resilient because, as you said, you know, chicken soup and, and cotton wool. So is the snowflake generation less resilient? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think almost by definition, yes, because that is what almost how the term was was coined. I think there are more pressures. And if younger generations are less resilient, it's less resilient to what they're currently experiencing. And I think if we, as men in our 50s, were thrown in now to our teens or early 20s, we would be just as ill-prepared. Whether or not we, our level of resilience had changed at all. Yeah, I totally so agree. I, so I actually don't think kids are... I would actually argue that they're more resilient. They've got better skills in terms of being able to discuss their mental health than, than we ever did, um, particularly men. I think uh, younger boys are able to talk about their mental health better, but there is more crap thrown at them. And, and they need a high level of resilience than we ever did. And I think, you know, social media, and I don't want to just jump on the bandwagon and say it's all because of social media, but I think social media has got a, a part part to play. I actually also think the cat's out of the bag and digital platforms are likely to be part of the solution as well. Very, very quick story. Demonstrate my feelings about social media. I had a wonderful time, took two of my son's, um, camping in um in Cornwall um a few months back it was half term for my kids but it wasn't half term for anyone so we had blue sky beaches we went surfing we were posting on the social media as you do so there's there's me with my two metal hips but managed to get myself into a wetsuit and did a bit of surfing then later in the day posted pictures of about to get onto a fishing boat coming back uh, with the mackerel that we caught um, and then grilling the mackerel on a fire. Sounds, sounds idyllic. Idyllic. And of course, probably more likes than I'd ever had on any Facebook. So reality was somewhat different. I joked about getting into the wetsuit. It was a wetsuit that I had before I had two metal hips and was probably about three stone lighter. I struggled to get in. I struggled to do any surfing. It's the first time I'd done it. Two metal hips. I was in pain. But again, Take a picture with the blue sky, holding onto my son with the surfboard. Everyone thinks, amazing. When we went onto the boat um, with my, my younger son, got very sick very quickly. I went to the skipper of the boat. I said, can we turn back? He's, he, he, I'm afraid you're going to have to buy all the other passengers out of this fishing trip. Um, was, he said it was going to cost me £400. I thought, you know what? He can be sick for £400. <laughs> Within, I've never been particularly... Sick, although I did tell you at the start, yeah. I didn't want that. It's a good job I didn't get a job of the QE2. Um, and it just set me off. So the two of us were lying in the middle of the boat while my other son was, was fishing, but the two of us were lying just praying for the end of this two hour trip. The fact is, I didn't post any of that on Facebook. So my friends, no doubt sitting in their offices or at home or whatever, thinking, oh, look at Laurie. There Here's he is. Laurie again. with his perfect kids. Perfect kids, perfect, perfect lifestyle, perfect <laughs> hips, whatever. Yeah. And yet that wasn't the reality. And I'd, as part of me would like to say, well, what we need to do is have a campaign 
where I'm not saying don't use social media, but use it realistically. Maybe show it, show our vulnerable side as well. Show as our a- vulnerable side as well. Not all the positive stuff. You know, Instagram, uh, how people um, actually look at anyone. Internet, look, the, I know through the cafe that we've now got, people taking pictures of the food. Now, yes. that's great because yeah. you know, it's all about the food porn. But, but there's something about it. It's about that super, it's how everything looks. Yeah. It's not how it feels. Yeah. And I think that is the problem. And there's always a story positive. behind the story that you, that you think you're witnessing. Absolutely. I mean, years ago, they used to say the camera never lies, but in fact, it does damn well lie Absolutely. every single time. And technically, <laughs> we're even better at making it. Oh, yeah, swipe here, swipe left. And, and so I think the, the problem is, you know, very short story as well. A friend of mine emigrated to, um, uh, to America some years ago, and he was back. And we're having a few drinks and a barbecue. Um, a couple of summers ago and my eldest son was just going to prom at his school and so with my friends and I were joking I, I said something about you know we didn't have prom at our school this is and they looked at me and said yes we did it was called a sixth form dance or whatever um, Laurie you would have been at a rugby match or a swimming or something so you wouldn't have been there and I was really I remember my heart sinking at this point thinking good grief I missed out on that and then I think, okay, as a 50-year-old bloke making missing out on his 16 or 18-year-old prom, it's not a big, big deal. Ha- but the fact is, I realise it's because we didn't have social media. At the time, I would have come back from my swimming meet, looked at my phone, seen everybody having a good time at the party, and how would that have affected me? So in, that's what I mean about I didn't need that resilience then because I wasn't confronted with the issues. Whereas now I, uh, you clear, you clearly would be. No, it's a fascinating conversation because this, and, and also there's such a wide range of mental health issues from, I don't know what the top is, if you like schizophrenia and bipolar, right down to anxiety type disorders and, you know, on the spectrum. There is a huge range, but that's why sometimes diagnosis isn't helpful because, yeah. you know, Clinical depression can be absolute, which a lot of people would classify as, as a lesser problem to psychosis. It can be just as debilitating and you can find some very, look, we've got some inspirational peer support workers that know how to manage their psychosis and it's, uh, and it doesn't impact on their lives as what would quite commonly be construed as lesser conditions. So I would like to get to the point where, as I said, we're really not talking about diagnosis. What we're talking about, Jamie, is complex social care interventions and it's the complexity of the interventions that needs the professionals not the diagnosis that led people to need those interventions sure there's a a, a term that's recently come into the public domain called parity of esteem which i don't know where that came i think probably from some select committee in parliament somewhere when they're not discussing brexit which i believe means that mental health issues should be given the same level of importance that physical health and well-being is given I mean, it's, it's fine words, but is it moving in the right direction? Do you, are you seeing a, a, this being rebalanced? There's certainly more conversations, but the reality is the funding just does not come through. It just does not get to, to the, to the coalface. When you appreciate that 50% of illness in the workplace is mental illness. And that my wife works as clinical director for a large uh, mental health trust. Um, it, there's, there's no doubt that mental illness mental health is not funded as well as as physical health or anything and i think the thing is we need to take a uh, a, a better look at the the macroeconomic costs costs of this because i think in the main in this country crisis care is pretty good but anything around the preventative piece and what's leading up to the crisis yeah. care is just, now i don't blame commissioners for that i don't blame because you know if you don't have enough money where are you going to put it but 
it's a and sorry to be crass, but it's almost akin to saying in cancer care, um, I'm afraid we're going to pull all funding apart from palliative care. Yeah. Now, clearly, everyone would be up in arms if anyone said that. What, you're not going to do any, you know, most of the investment in this country is actually, is about cancer treatment and, and detection and what have you. That's where we need it to be in mental health. But the government, well, I suppose you could argue it's third sector that's funded most, an awful lot of the cancer, cancer yeah. work as well. Uh, but it's sad, and maybe it's just the nature of of our political structure that nobody can take a long term view. Yeah, you have. You know, I was going to say five years is a long time in politics. At the moment, five minutes is a long time in politics. Indeed. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it would need that that real kind of ma- um, helicopter view of of health and well being and public health. To say, like, I think there's no doubt in terms of public health, mental health is the biggest issue. But you absolutely need to need to invest and i think it's building skills get it's build it's utilizing social capital so that people in the same way that i I described our vision is of a jewish community that is really great at supporting itself we need a a wider community that knows how to 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 support itself absolutely so where do we learn our lessons from as a a community where do we get our experiences from is it just from within the community or they're drawn from wider circles as well in terms of our learning about how we support each other is it just from experience? Not, I, I think there's something, there's something about the Jewish community. I don't know. I think there's something about any minority group. And the Jewish community is still a very, we're very loud, but a very small, small community in, in, in that sense. And there's something about, we're lucky enough at Jamie that in the main, the Jewish community in the UK is concentrated in six postcodes. Well, that makes it pragmatically a lot easier sure. to deliver services. That's a valid and, point. and also to, de- to demonstrate what you do you know we've got a cafe our first cafe is um mental health cafe called headroom um it's in golders green now golders green is a highly um jewish densely populated area but everybody can walk in off the street it's not just it's not just for jews and and that's about destigmatizing that's about bringing mental health so that the the um the high street about kind of slapping taboo in the face and say we're here it's a it's a it's an aspirational place to go. It's you're not going just because you want to support a mental health girls. I'd like to feel it's because it's the best cafe in the yeah. area, and that's why and um, that's why people go there. But we're lucky enough as a charity to be able to say, well, okay, in that area we can really make a positive difference. Now, could we do that on a national scale? No, because you know we're ninety nine point four percent voluntary funded. I was gonna say, yeah. Um so we don't we get almost no statutory income. I mentioned that in the twelve years I've been at Jamie, our income has grown from three hundred and fifty thousand to about three point two million, but our statutory income has actually shrunk from about eighty or ninety thousand to about thirty thousand. So we get thirty thousand of the three point two million. Now again I don't blame the commissioners because they see a successful third sector organization that is growing and flourishing but the trouble is, you're almost um, rewarding failure. Yeah, but you're growing and flourishing for a reason because there's a bigger demand. Absolutely, and you should. So as I think that the point is so. But, but even with us, we we know that we don't meet all demand. We have a KPI that will get back to people within 48 hours of, refer, uh, of referral to us. But we struggle. Uh, we struggle with that one because because of demands. So the idea of things like the cafe is it ticks a number of boxes. It provides. I would say, a much better image of Jamie and mental health in the high street. It provides an access point for our services. It provides um, vocational opportunities for people uh, using our services. 
But most of all, on top of all of that, and overriding all of that, is the fact it's a sustainable way of delivering services because it's, it, it's not a multi-million pound operation, but it brings in about £300,000 a year in terms of small profit. So, okay. so even if it was just a free offering, it's certainly a lot cheaper than operating in a normal place. Yeah. And I would say it does uh, uh, give a much better impression of mental health to the community and of, of the organisation. No, I, I agree. And from a visual point of view, it's a lovely place to go and relax and nice cup of coffee and Although a piece of cake put, as well. I've put on a stone since we opened it. So. <laughs> it doesn't look like it. Don't look at my belly, please. <laughs> too much chicken soup and cake. We're fine. We're 50-year-old blokes talking on, on, the, on the podcast. Yeah, I, can't, I, can't, I can't get into a wetsuit. <laughs> I wouldn't even dream of trying. We didn't say, see the photos. I'm not sure I can either. I've got to check it out. What's your Facebook site? <laughs> So just just quickly run through the the high level parts of Jamie as a charity, the, the different areas that you cover off from you know your day centres to your outreach. Just yeah. just we're concentrating in six hubs. We've got the four more kind of traditional building hubs um, where uh, where you would expect the Jewish community to be in London. So we have one in Hackney, um, one in Redbridge, um, one in um, Golders Green, and one in Finchley. And then we also have our social enterprise and vocational hub based in a warehouse in Boreham Wood. So just to go back, the, the hubs are places like day centres where, where people yes, I mean, come they're, in. They're varying, they are it's varying offerings based on the needs of the individual. So we still need hubs where our staff are based, you know, in terms of just, it's very hard, and I know that of old myself, you know, to come to a place of work and it would, it would not to have a place of work, not to have somewhere where you can leave your coffee cup or whatever it is. So, you know, staff... Need that as well, but for some of the older older clients, I take it the people in their fifties and sixties, they might be in you know quite poor accommodation, and just to have somewhere where they can come and have a hot meal and a cup of coffee and 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 speak to um, professionals and their friends is is a really important provision. So we still offer that, but gone are the days when someone would come five days a week, two a day and nine to five, and have have their meals there. So they'll be there for a very definite program of activities which and we I make no excuses as an engineer whenever anybody comes to services we assess their need we ask them we're not providing services for people we're not providing support for people we're helping people to support themselves so we're looking when people come what are your needs we'll set goals and we we have a cloud-based system that monitors all of that so we know how many interventions we delivered every year how many success what the outcomes are how many of the goals have been met those kind of things which are really important for the people using the services and the staff and the staff as well but so of those four traditional hubs uh one or, or two of them are for predominantly older clients um, those kind of clients that have, we've already mentioned have become institutionalised by the system. Um, but then uh, in, in, then the other hubs, younger people might be just coming for uh, shorter periods, shorter interventions, um, different kind of uh, programmes. The hub in uh, the new vocational and social enterprise hub in Boreham Wood is a warehouse setting. So less institutionalised, we expect people to turn up at nine o'clock in the morning, not to rock up at half past 10 and have a cup of coffee, whatever. And we do eBay sales there. Um, so people are learning IT skills, photography skills, yeah, marketing brilliant. skills, finance yeah. skills. Mm-hmm. Then we do upcycling. You might have seen some of the upcycled furniture in the cafe. Not yet. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some upcycling. Oh, in the cafe. Yes, I have seen it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and um, um, so the idea is the better, the higher quality goods um, that we get will sell in the cafe. 
um, or things that are conducive to selling the cafe will sell in the cafe. Everything else will be sold in on eBay. So the upcycled um, goods. So it's more of a what you would expect, however unwell someone has been, age 25 or 18, 19, 20, 25, coming out, struggling to put structure to their day to come to that kind of setting. Um, so we have that. We've already mentioned our, our cafe in, in, um, in Golders Green. We have 10 flats above, above the cafe, which is about stepping stones, um, supporting people to get back into, um, independent living. We have hospital visiting, uh, teams that go around. And this actually is a really important provision. I think over 30 psychiatric units across London are visited by our teams. And for, uh, for a lot of people, seeing a pathway when you come out of um, an inpatient um, facility is really, really important. Um, well, it's important for the staff that are working in the NHS in those units as well to know that there is someone to go. But it's that continuity. Either you've known Jamie before you go in, or you've had no contact, but knowing that there is a support network when you come out. Yeah, both of those gives are, a ray of hope, doesn't a, it? A ray of hope. So it, it's, it's hard to, quite often I'm asked, well, what is the typical service that you offer someone? It is really so varied. We have um, physical health uh, support. We have um, employment support for people, helping people to develop uh, work skills again and get back into either volunteering or paid work. We have a very, um, very busy care and family support service, supporting car- uh, carers and other family members. So really you're touching all, if you like, all the touch points, the life cycle of mental health issues, both from the sufferer, if I use that word, to the carers, to the professionals in employment, getting back to employment. You know, well, I mentioned that 50% of illness in the workplace is mental illness. Mm. If you don't have a mental health problem yourself, if you're caring... If you're an immediate family member of someone with a significant mental health problem, you have got a 60 to 70% chance of developing depression or anxiety sure. yourself. Yeah. Not, not a surprise, but right. that's the, the, those are the stats. We didn't even touch on the residential home either, did we? Absolutely, which is, um, and you know, a residential home that was built some, some years ago. At that time, we were very, very small. It was actually before I started here. We're starting to do a lot of work with that home again because I, I see that as being... We need a lot more of the recovery uh, model, if you like, to 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 come to um, to come into that place. So it's more of a kind of a rehab unit than just a home for life, because nobody, will, regardless of their their mental health, should in their early twenties be shown somewhere that they're going to live for the rest of their lives. You wouldn't do that if you're moving to your own home. So why should you do that just because true, of your health? True. Well, I just. I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'm very mindful that you're a busy guy running, running a big size operation here. What, what are your plans for the future? I mean, where do you see that you already said you want to make yourself redundant or Jamie redundant in the long term? But say the next two, three years, what, what plans do you have? What, where do you think the, the next need is going to be that you can fulfill? The, the next two or three years, it's going to be more of this support to build capacity and capability in other organizations so that arguably we provide social care interventions for people whose mental health stops them getting those interventions from a generic social care provider. So if we can help those generic social care providers to be able to provide those interventions, that's got to be good for everybody. So that is a huge piece of work. As you said, it comes down to education an awful lot, but also then development of more of the vocational and social enterprise hubs because it's better for people that are using them uh, because it's less institutionalised. I don't like using the word normal, but it, it is more normal going to that, that kind of setting. Um, 
And uh, in terms of our financial sustainability, it's better for us because we actually can generate an income on some of these at, at, the, at same the same time, time as providing services. services. Yeah. No, perfect. So those are the two areas. Yeah. All right, Laurie. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure and a privilege uh, as always. Jamie is a fantastic organisation. Uh, I have to give my parents some credit for that as well. The, the, the founder, co-founder. Although the I founder? blame your father quite a lot as one of those two trustees that got me into this. <laughs> who, who nobbled you in the first place and said, I've got a little job for you. How many years later have you been here? Yes, yeah, he did say me a very, very varied job. I'm not sure he, either of us quite understood. You didn't quite what, appreciate, what it, yeah. What, what, I don't, well, yeah. None of us quite appreciated what what was going to be around the corner, but uh, here we are. Thanks to my parents, I suppose, Absolutely. in many respects, we're around this table today. So, Thank you very much for all the, the, great, the great work you do personally and you on behalf of Jamie and everybody else. And there's also a young Jamie uh, group as well, which is recently set up as well, which I think is going to start to do some fantastic yes, work. Absolutely. Fundraising because yeah. getting awareness out into that young generation is fantastic. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And uh, let's stay in touch. I'm sure we will. Thanks very much, Steve. Every week here at Your London Legacy... We bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.